so good to see you, to be here in the room. Uh, last week, unfortunately, I, uh, I was not 100% and uh, was watching online. Hello to everybody online who is watching, um, and, uh, and I'm just happy to be here. So it was great to, to, to hear the message last week around Pergamum, fantastic message. Kat, you did an amazing job of taking a really tough message and turning it into something uh, that is encouraging and uplifting. Let's see if we can take an encouraging and uplifting message and turn it into something a bit tougher. Let's see what happens today. <laughs> Pray that's not what occurs. Um, this morning we are continuing our, our series in Revelation, the seven letters uh, to the seven churches in Revelation. And uh, as my wife mentioned, I'm kicking back to letter number two, and that is the church in Smyrna. So over the last couple of weeks, we've heard a little bit about uh, what was going on in the world at that time. There is going to be a short history lesson up front, um, because that's the best way for us to get an understanding of what it is that was going on and what it is that the people in Smyrna had to deal with and how it is that, that uh, we can then learn from that as well. But so over the last couple of weeks, we've heard about uh, the, the, the conditions in the world at that time, the time of revelation, when in particular, the cult of emperor worship had begun to permeate not only the community, but it actually started to infiltrate the church as well. Now, the whole book of Revelation was written in order to communicate with an evocative imagery, the fact that our God is the King of Kings, our God is 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 God overall, is triumphant overall, that our God is the God of the universe. And even though the world system looks strong, even though the world system looks powerful, even though the world system looks like it might be stacked against you, ultimately, we stand on the winning side because our God will be victorious and we will reign with Him forever. That was the intent of the book of Revelation. As John was writing it, this is what he was trying to communicate to everybody who would read it. No wonder he said, blessed are those who read the words of the prophecy. Today we continue with the letter written to the church in Smyrna. If you have your Bibles, you might want to turn to Revelation chapter 2. We're starting at verse 8. This is one of the shortest letters. In fact, it's the shortest letter of the seven letters to the churches. To the angel of the church in Smyrna, write, These are the words of him who is the first and the last. Everybody say, first and last. Who died and came to life again. I know your afflictions and your poverty, yet you are rich. I know the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not be afraid of what you are about to suffer. I tell you, the devil will put some of you in prison to test you, and you will suffer persecution for 10 days. Now, when John wrote that, he did not mean a literal 10 days. That, that uh, number actually had specific meaning that 10 meant that it would come to a time of completion. It would be a short period of time, and it would come to an end. Be faithful, he says, even to the point of death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He who overcomes will not be hurt at all by the second death. You know, Smyrna was one of the most important and influential cities in Asia Minor at the time. In fact, it was probably second only to Ephesus. It was one of the most beautiful cities at the time. It was filled with creative types. There were people like Jesse and Camille all over the place. They were, they were, creative. There were artisans, there were poets. There were, in fact, it was actually home to the great ancient poet Homer. 
Not that guy. Homer's Iliad, Homer's Odyssey. The great ancient poet lived in Smyrna. It was a flourishing trade port city in AD 26. Remember, this is when Jesus was walking the earth, AD 26. In AD 26, it competed and won against 11 other cities to become the host city for the, uh, uh, the right to deify Emperor Tiberius. And as a result of that, the city quickly became a center for the imperial cult. Again, second probably only to Ephesus. Similar to Ephesus, I don't know if you kind of get this, but there was a vibe between Ephesus and Smyrna, a bit like kind of Sydney and Melbourne-ish. Kind of the, this, this competitive vibe between them. Ephesus was as a center for the uh, worship of the Greek god, god Artemis. Well, similarly, not to be outdone, Smyrna was a center for a worship of the Greek god Dionysus. Dionysus was the, uh, the god of the grape harvest. He was the god of, of agriculture. He was the god of theater. He was the god of a whole bunch of insanity. He was a, a whole bunch of things. He was supposedly the Greek god of. Now, it's all very weird and it's all very complicated, but part of the myth surrounding Dionysus was that he was born to Zeus. If you're familiar with Greek mythology, Zeus is the king of the gods. It's like he is the god of all the gods. And his mother was Persephone. Persephone was actually a virgin. He was killed by the Titans, and then he was raised back to life by a second birth. Anything starting to sound a little bit familiar here? Everyone in Smyrna would have known this because Dionysus was such a, a big part of life in Smyrna, but so too would have the Christians. The Christians knew this as well. And so when Jesus comes and says, I am the first and the last who died and came to life again. He was reminding the church in Smyrna. He was no mythical deity with some mock death and resurrection, but he was the one true living God. He was the king of kings who died and rose from the dead, victorious to rule evermore. He was demonstrating his superiority over the mythical gods of the world that they found themselves in at that time. You know, the, the letter to Smyrna teaches us, the first lesson in the letter to Smyrna, it teaches us of God's superiority over the so-called gods of this world, the gods of your circumstance, the situations that you're facing, the things that look too big, the situations that look way out of control. God is saying, I am the God of those things. They have no power because I am the God of the universe. The church in Smyrna was facing considerable suffering. Part of the reason it was a small church, let's face it. Nobody wants to join a church that's going bad. Nobody wants to join a church that's suffering. So it was a small church. It was a poor church, but in a very prosperous city. But they weren't always that way. See, Rome were very clever. When Rome conquered a nation, a city, a people group, they knew that they somehow needed to subdue that group of people. They had to keep those people subservient to the emperor. And the way they did that, without stationing a soldier on every street corner of every city and every town in every nation that they ever conquered, which would have taken a lot of soldiers, the way they did that was that they would co-opt local leaders and elites in the towns and cities, and they would get them to rule over their own people. They would become the governors. But even though they were locals, they would be loyal to Rome because of all of the inducements, the wealth, the status, the power that Rome would be able to afford them. 
Rome, when they took over a place, would often uh, allow local customs and local festivals to continue. They would allow local religious groups to continue practicing their religion. As long as the people didn't make trouble. So long as they still pledged fealty to the emperor, then that would be fine. Rome would accommodate the local people to a large degree. And this would keep peace in the region. And it would keep loyalty to the emperor, which was what they were looking for. Of all the people that Rome had conquered, the Jews were a little unique in that the Jews were a monotheistic religion. That is, they had one God. See, many of the places that they conquered were polytheistic. They had many gods. And so when they were told, you have to worship the emperor now, they're like, yeah, okay. Oh, one more God. Sure, I can do that. It was one of the problems of the early church. People who were, who were converted from worshipping multiple gods, were, it's part of the problem in the Indian church today. People who were converted from worshipping multiple gods are like, oh, I can worship Jesus too. But that's not how it was for the Jews, and that's not how it was for the Christians, obviously. And so, because they would worship only one God, in order to accommodate them, and this was a huge accommodation by Rome, they were exempted from participation in the imperial cult. They did not have to worship Caesar. They would have to pay a special tax, and that was mainly due to their revolt in AD 70, but they would not have to worship the emperor in order to participate in the culture, including the local trade guilds that flourished in the city. So what this meant was that Jewish carpenters could go to the carpentry guild and they could get work. Jewish blacksmiths could go to the blacksmiths guild and they could get work. And as such, they could participate in the prosperity of the city. They could work. They could get government contracts. They could build houses. They were allowed to build wealth. And in turn, implicit in this kind of agreement, they would not make trouble. They would still be subservient to the emperor, even though they didn't worship him. Now, early on, and we see this in the book of Acts, the Christians met in the synagogues, and they were seen by the Romans as basically Jewish. Romans saw the Christians getting together, and they figured, well, they're just kind of another part of the Jews, aren't they? And to be honest, you could understand why. The Christians worshipped Yahweh. So did the Jews. The Christians believed in a Messiah. So did the Jews. Admittedly, the Christians kind of thought he'd already come or something, but whatever, they kind of believed in the same thing. The Christians worshipped one God only, as did the Jews. The Christians fellowshiped and worshipped and taught in the synagogue, as did the Jews. So as far as Rome was concerned, if the Jews were going to allow this group of people into the synagogue to be a part of synagogue life, then they were effectively Jewish. As such, the Christian church also got a pass from emperor worship, and that meant that they could now participate in the prosperity of the city. That's good times for the Christian church. But at the time of this receiving this letter, or some 20 years earlier, the Jews in Smyrna began disowning the Christians. They began to put the Christians out of the synagogues. 
They began to dissociate themselves from the Christians, distance themselves. They're not of us. They're not, they're not, they're not Jews. They're not, the, they're not the real chosen people. And they would actually start to put them out of the synagogue. And so, for the last 20 years, having been thrown out of the synagogue, well, they no longer enjoyed the exemption from emperor worship. And so suddenly, they were now required to, uh, to worship the emperor like everybody else was. It left them ostracized and unable to be part of the society that they found themselves in. They were just too different from the society that they found themselves in. This would subject them to poverty because they were unable to get work. It would subject them to, uh, to slander from the Jews as well as from local governors. In fact, the local governors basically viewed Christian non-involvement in, in emperor worship as basically being treachery to Rome. It would mean that they would be persecuted. They would be imprisoned. This is why, because it all came about from the Jews saying, get out, of the, get out of the synagogue. You can't be part of us. This is why Jesus said, I, I know of those who call themselves Jews, the people of God, but are not. They are a synagogue of Satan. Because if they were my people, they wouldn't have done this to you. That's what, that's what Jesus was saying to them. This is the situation Smyrnaean Christians find themselves in as they receive this letter from John to be read to the whole church. Does this make sense? It's not, it's, not a, it's not a pretty situation. The letter to Smyrna is unique in that it's one of only two letters that have no criticisms leveled at the church, only encouragement. Smyrna and Philadelphia are the two churches that had no criticisms leveled towards them. It's also the fact that they are the only two churches that have been characterized by having to endure suffering. It's interesting. God warns that they will undergo significant suffering in the days of head. Can I suggest to you that maybe it's not a coincidence? Maybe there's a link. Maybe there's some sort of connection. It's no coincidence that the persecuted and suffering churches are the only ones to receive commendations and not criticism now my good-natured heart thinks to myself well maybe that's because you know god doesn't want to pile on you know they're doing it tough as it is god they don't need god to come in and lay the boot in as well do you know what i mean so god just wants to be an encourager because i know i've been in tough situations and i felt god encouraged me anybody else felt god encouraged them through tough situations Anybody? Yeah? Yeah. Maybe he just wants to be an encourager. Maybe. Or maybe it's because what they went through actually did something in them that made them commendable. Maybe what they went through created something within them that was worth commending. Because as much as we hate it, suffering purifies us. As much as we don't like it at all, it is like a refiner's fire that brings all the impurities to the surface that can be swept away and we're left with pure gold. This is what suffering does. It reminds us of what it is that truly matters to us. You ever had a near-death experience, you would know. Your priorities shift, bam, like that. Very quickly, your priorities, oh, I know what's really important now. And another day at the office isn't it. Suffering sorts out the men from the boys, so to speak. That's why it was a small church. Because it distinguishes between the fair-weather Christian 
and the one for whom Jesus is life. He is everything for me. Suffering is what shakes that out. Suffering forces us to make a choice to run away or to live dependent on God. Whereas great comfort and prosperity can often lead us away from God. Now, it doesn't have to. It's not even supposed to. But all too often it does. If I was to summarize the letter to Smyrna in a sentence, this is kind of what I came up with. Jesus encourages, like if you had to write it on the back of a, you know, back of a book thing or on a, the, the title of a podcast, that kind of thing. Jesus encourages a suffering people to endure by choosing to do what's right. And they will ultimately be rewarded. That kind of summarizes what's what the letter to Smyrna is about. It's Jesus encouraging a suffering people to endure by choosing to do what's right, and they will ultimately be rewarded. Now, if it was up to me, and I was writing the back of that, that uh, book cover or the, 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 the blurb for the podcast, I'd like to kind of round that out a little bit more and say, then Jesus reassures them that he'll rescue them from the hands of the nasty Jews and the evil Romans. Wouldn't that be a great way to finish that? Isn't that a much nicer way to do the summary? Come on. Endure by choosing, but then Jesus will get those nasty Jews for you and the bad Romans will pay. I like a happy ending to a story. Funnily, and not funny ha-ha, that's actually not how the summary ends. Jesus actually says to them, they may not get relief from their suffering. What are you talking about, Jesus? Jesus actually says to them, they may go to prison or in fact, die. Like, does it get any worse than that? Yes, it does, believe me. They may go to prison or die. So when we read that, I don't know about you, but for me, the letter to Smyrna starts to challenge our theology around suffering. It starts to challenge how we think about suffering. What place we think suffering has in our life. Well, none. Oh, yeah, well, okay. But it starts to challenge us because... Western Christianity generally, and if we're honest, Pentecostal Christianity in particular, we are not very good at handling suffering. We don't do suffering very well. I was sick last week. I was very unwell. Terribly, terribly unwell. My wife comes in and she says, I told them we had the man flu. I was basically on death's door. There was a whole frog in my throat, like a whole frog. And I was like, oh, yeah, it's the man flu. We, the church, don't do, we as individuals don't do suffering very well. But we, the church, we don't, we don't do suffering. We don't handle it very well. Somebody calls us a Bible basher. <laughs> I'm being persecuted for my faith. Well. 
maybe a little. Look, if you've been called a Bible basher, my heart goes out to you and I'm sorry. But I don't want to minimize your feelings. But can I just say, there are people in this church right now, in this congregation, who have had their houses burnt down because they follow Jesus. They're sitting next to you. There are people in this church who have had to escape war-torn countries, oppressive regimes, people that, that, that hated them simply because they were Christians. So don't get me wrong, nobody likes being called a Bible basher. I get you. I'm with you. Nobody likes that at work. Nobody wants to be made fun of. I'm just saying... Our theology just gets on really shaky ground when we go through hardship. Our theology on suffering is just kind of like, and I have found that it doesn't actually get any better when we connect with people that are going through hardship. A number of times I've, I've met people going through a tough time and as a pastor you get to hear all the stories, it's fabulous, because they come to you and say, oh yeah, you know, I was talking to, talking to somebody and they said, I just needed more faith. And I just look at them like, who was that? Just tell me who that was. <laughs> Is that in my church? Tell me if that's in our church. Because if that's in our church, I would love to go and have a chat with them. Could you just tell me who that was? Who was that? You say it with a nice face, but on the back, behind it, I'm thinking, I'm going to headbutt that person. This poor person going through an unbelievably difficult time, whether it was in their, their sickness or, or stuff happening in their business or in their or whatever, you just need a bit more faith, you know? Just, just believe harder. Or my personal favourite, I love this one. You just got to praft more. Come on, we've all heard that one, haven't we? You just got to praft more. If only you prafted more, if only you prafted harder, then God would come through for you. Have you not heard that? Of course you have. Pray, read your Bible, act out in faith, fast, and tell your situation the promise of God. Prafting. And we're pretty good at it too, can I just say. When things go wrong, we get the praft on, isn't it? You just got to praft more and then you'll be okay. Now, look, I've got no problem praying and believing. I'm with you. I'll pray and believe with you the whole way, absolutely. But have you noticed in life that sometimes, even after you've prafted, that sometimes bad things still happen? Is this in anybody else? It's not just me? Sometimes bad things still happen. And funnily, we don't see Jesus standing between the lampstand saying, Behold, you need to praft more. He who prafts will surely prevail. That's, that doesn't happen. We don't see him saying that at all. In fact, he tells them, you may die for your faith. You might die because you're following me. You might die because you believe in me. And yet God's encouragement is, it's okay. If you endure, you will overcome. You might even die here, but you won't get impacted by the second death, and that's the one that counts. See, the second letter, the second lesson that the letter to Smyrna teaches us is not to get too attached to the temporal, because we are eternal beings and our home is in eternity. I don't know if you've noticed this. Some of you are younger here. Some of you are older here. But one of the things I've noticed as I've gotten older is that the things around me seem more real. When I was younger, 
so much younger than today. None of this size even heard of the Beatles. <laughs> Bronte's looking at me like, what? When I was younger, I, I, I was so focused on who God was and heaven. And, and because, you know, I'd only been living on earth 15 years, 20 years, 25 years, 30 years. I'd only been living on earth for a short time. So the things around me, although they were actually there, you know, I just knew that they weren't there forever. They're not eternal it's all going to burn. That's how it's going to happen in the end, and we're all going to go to heaven. And so my focus was fixed much more firmly on things of heaven and things that are above and things that are eternal in nature. But as I've gotten older, and as I've gotten more things, because I didn't have a house back then, I didn't have a car back then, I borrowed this thing that was looking like a car, but it wasn't really a car because it didn't run like a normal car. I'll give you the big tip. At every petrol station stop, I would check the petrol and fill up the oil. Like, it was, it was not a normal car. So, so, as I got older and as I got more stuff and as I went further in life and, and all of those things, then all of a sudden, all the stuff around me seemed to be a little bit more real, a bit more solid, a bit more permanent. And yet it wasn't. It's an illusion. I'm 52 this year. If I'm lucky, I've got 30 or 40 years left. If things go well, I may or may not. I don't know. None of us know. But then, when I'm 80 or 90 years old and I shuffle off this mortal coil, I'm going to be stepping into eternity. And this 80 or 90 years is going to look awful small in contrast with eternity. The letter to Smyrna teaches us not to fix our eyes on the things around us, but to fix our eyes on eternity and to live our life in light of eternity. See, as I read this letter, it makes me ask myself, and I, you know, this is a uh, pastor's cathartic reaction to the questions he has to ask himself, is make everybody else ask themselves as well. So I'm going to throw these same questions to you. Are we okay to go through tough times? only knowing that God is with us. Are we okay with that? Are we okay going through difficulty and not having control over our circumstance? Are we okay when we're through a time of suffering when we don't know the outcome and we can't dictate the outcome? Are we going to be okay going through that space? See, I've gone through suffering in my life, as everybody in this room has. And I've gone through different types of suffering. And let me tell you what I've learned through the suffering that I've gone through. In all of those situations, whether it was because somebody inflicted it upon me, some of, some of which was malicious, and they did something to me, and that put me into a space of suffering. So whether it was somebody inflicting it upon me, or whether it was a result of my own stupidity and bad decisions, hello, made plenty of those. Oh my goodness, if I, just, if, I, if I didn't make the bad decisions I made, my suffering would have been reduced by 75%, I'm guessing, in my lifetime. But whether it was because of somebody else inflicting it on me, or it was self-inflicted from just dumb decisions, or 
It was just life. It was just life. We were so happy and, and joyous to, to welcome Caitlin. It took a while to get pregnant, but we were so happy and she came along and that's great and great now. You know, when we have our next child and then we couldn't have a child and we, it's like, what do you mean? Well, I don't understand. Why can't we have another kid? We go to the doctor and the doctor says, oh, no, no, you don't understand. You can't have children. What's this thing sitting next to me? I don't understand. Like, yeah, I don't know how that happened. That's a miracle, but you can't have children. That wasn't anyone's fault. It wasn't because somebody inflicted that upon us. It wasn't, it wasn't a result of bad decisions. It was just life. Sometimes life deals out a tough hand. It's just what it is. It's a product of living in a fallen world. But whether it was been inflicted upon me or it was self-inflicted or it was just life, this is the lesson that I learned about suffering. Suffering is hard. And I... Don't like it. Is there anybody else who's learned that in suffering? Come on. Suffering's hard. And I don't like it at all. The other thing I did learn about suffering is that each person's suffering is very unique to them. See, there are things that you go through that if we caught up and you shared with me, I'd think to myself, really? Like that's suffering, okay? I'm hearing you. I, I, don't, I don't feel it, but I get it. And there are things that I go through that if we caught up and I told you, you'd be like, you're a bit soft, aren't you, Alex? Like, that's suffering? Really? Because our suffering is unique to each of us. Because we're individual, we all go through different things and, and we all go through different circumstances. That's why comparing suffering is a bit of a mugs game. Even... If you did get called Bible basher, look, look, it's good to put it in perspective, but that can still hurt. Suffering is unique to the individual. But whatever the suffering, whatever it is you've gone through, as unique as it is to each of us, I'll guarantee it sorts out our Christianity. I'll guarantee it, 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 it shifts the way we think about the way we live our life, and who God is in our life. And I know in my own life, it's done that numbers and numbers of times. A number of years ago, it's probably about seven, eight, ten years ago, it's a little while now, a number of years ago, I just had a bad year. Anybody ever had that year? Like you can just, even now as I said bad year, it's like, oh, you mean that year. Anyone? Yeah? Yeah, bad year. Like it was a year from hell. By the end of the year... I was writing in my journal and I documented 10 specific individual things that occurred over the course of that year that were just terrible things occurring. So, for example, my mum died. That's never good, you know? Sarah's nana died that year. That year, um, we, uh, as a church... We were running a church at the time and had a charity that was doing significant things in rural, regional and remote Queensland, um, doing lots of things. And as a church, we had an, uh, an agreement with a, a mining company and they were funding certain things and they had pledged a certain amount to fund and out of nowhere, just like that, bam, they just pulled the funding. They said, no, nah. well, wait a second, you said you're already going to fund. No, nope. we just pulled it. 
So pull the funding. So I had to uh, let go a whole bunch of staff in our church. Like it was just, it's one of the hardest things I've ever had to do is sit across from really good people and say, we don't have a job for you anymore. If you've ever run a business, if you've ever had to do that, if you've ever been in a position where you've had to do that, you just know how gut-wrenching it is to have to do that. We thought that the church potentially was going to go under. Like there's a whole bunch of stuff that, that, was, that was all tied into it. And then... At some point during the course of, of the year, we get a phone call from someone telling us that somebody had done some stuff with the money through our organization. They weren't in our organization. They had used our charity to commit fraud. And we're like, whoa, wait a second, what are you talking about? Now, I'm the head of the organization. We weren't aware. They, you know, the conversations that we had, they were good people. Well, we thought they were good people. But, you know, maybe not that good, I guess. And so they had done something that actually we had to report it to the ATO. We had to report it to the police. Like it was, oh, man, I'm, I'm just having, oh, freaking out. And there was like another five, six, seven of those that, that kind of happened over the course of the year. Like of that magnitude. And so one by one, one after the other, and look, sometimes not even after the other, sometimes one on top of the other at the same time, these things started to happen, and, and as they happened, I don't know what happened inside, but something on the inside just snapped, just like that. It was like one minute I was fine, and the next minute I was having anxiety attacks. And I, I didn't even know what an anxiety attack was. I'd never had an anxiety attack before. I'm not given to that kind of thing. I never had depression, not given to that kind of thing. Just, just, but just bam, like that, just snapped. And all of a sudden, I remember coming home and I'm just freaking out, freaking out. Can't control my own thoughts. I remember that that first week, I lost four kilos in a week because I just couldn't eat. I know now I'd love to lose four kilos. I'll take it in a month. Take it over the next six. I don't care. But probably not like that. I lost four kilos in a week. When I went to lay down, remember that first night? I went to lay down. My wife's so patient. I went to lay down on my bed. It was like eight o'clock and I was just totally exhausted. And that's not me either. I stay up till midnight, one o'clock. Like, you know, nine o'clock rolls around. It's like, oh, there's hours left to this day. Come on. Eight o'clock, I'm exhausted, I'm in bed. And as soon as I lay down, my body just starts burning up. Like I just, I just feel like I'm in a heater. I've got the covers thrown off. It's the you know, like middle of winter and I'm just burning up. My mind starts racing. I can't even control it. It's going into all these places. I'm imagining myself sitting on the, on the wrong side of a prison, prison perspex glass with my hand up against it and my daughter's hand on the other side. I love you, baby. I'm imagining I'm going to be broke, I'm going to be destitute, my family's going to be out, how, are they, how am I going to take care of my family, I'm going to lose everything. Like my mind was just racing into all these different spaces and places. It was a, I mean, it's far enough away now that, yeah, it's kind of, I can laugh. Oh, gee, I couldn't at the time. I just I, I couldn't at the time. In fact, all I did was cry. I was bawling my eyes out. And I would, I would, uh, <laughs> at the time, there was a place about 30 minutes away from our house, up in the hills, and it would give you a whole view of the city. And I used to go up there and I used to pray for our city. But once this happened, I went up there and I just prayed for me. 
I just pray, God, you've got to get me out of this. God, you've got to rescue me from this. I remember going up there and I'd be bawling my eyes out. Like I'd, I'd be snot going everywhere, like really bawling my eyes out. Do you know what I mean? Like really like, ah! and I'd be crying out to God. I've never cried out to God like that. And I'd be saying, God, you've got to get me out of this. And hey, I'm like every other Pentecostal, you know, scratch a Pentecostal. He'll claim a promise. That's what I was doing. Absolutely. I claimed every promise I could. I'd read through the Psalms. God, look what you did to David. God, look what you did here. I'd read through the Psalms. I'd be quoting the Psalms. I'd be quoting the Scripture. I'd be saying, God, you know I'm innocent. I haven't done anything wrong. God, I know you're going to rescue me. I know you're going to rescue me from this. And on this one occasion, as I'm crying out to God, this little voice in my head says, Who says? What? Who says? Get behind me, Satan. That can't be my Jesus, that's for sure. But I knew it wasn't Satan. I knew because my mind just started going, well, I actually know lots of people, good, godly people, who've sold their life out to God on the mission field, live for God. They got sick. We prayed for them. They didn't get better. They're still carrying it. How does our theology reconcile that? I knew a guy who went to jail, good, upstanding guy, Christian guy, doing the right thing, but because he was the head of the organization and something went wrong in the organization, he was the one responsible. He went to jail. He was in jail for two years. It's like, this is not, what, this is not encouraging. This is not what I want to talk, think about. What, are you, what, what, what? Look back at history at all the Christians who were martyred. Look at the apostles. Only one of them came out alive, John. Everybody else was martyred. And as I'm thinking about these things, God, I know you love me. I know you're going to rescue me. It's like, oh, I love you, but who said that I'm going to rescue you? And I'm telling you, it just, <laughs> it just freaked me out. God loves us, absolutely. But that doesn't mean that nothing bad will ever happen to us. It's just not life. It's not real life. And at that point, I came to this realization. There was no guarantee that I was going to get out of this the way that I was hoping I was going to get out. There's no guarantee. Maybe I would, maybe I wouldn't. I don't know. But at that point, I had a choice. Either that's it, I'm packing up and going. That's it, I'm done. I'm out of here then. What am I doing all this for? Or I actually need to press in closer and get closer to Jesus. I, I, I don't know God like I think I know him. And I need to engage him closer. Can I be really honest with you? It's going to sound really bad, but you know, I'm going to be honest. My first thought after Get Behind Me, Satan, my first thought was, God, what's the good of following you if you're not going to rescue me when I get in trouble? Anybody else ever thought that? Don't put your hand up. <laughs> Just being honest, that was my first thought. And at that point, I realized, I don't know God like I thought I knew God. And I actually need to. I don't understand who he is in my life like I thought I did. I've preached about his love. I've talked about his love. But I don't understand it in the same way that I need to. It's at that point I had to come to a fresh revelation of God's love for me. That his love transcends our situation. That whatever happened to me in the end ultimately didn't matter. That the one thing that I could hold on to that nobody could ever take from me was his love. When Paul said, who can separate us from the love of God? 
trial, tribulation, suffering, persecution, even demonic powers? No, none of them can. None of them can separate us from, from his love for us. It doesn't mean everything's going to... Paul knew. He went through all of those things. And yet he could still say, none of it can separate me from God's love. And the closer I get to Jesus, the more I realize that outer stuff, hey, I don't enjoy it, but it doesn't matter. In the light of eternity, it doesn't actually matter. It's a passing thing. Now let me say, this was no overnight revelation. It took me a couple of years for it to go from a knowledge in my head to a heart revelation that changed the way I live and changed the way I see suffering and that changed the way I go through it. I don't enjoy suffering. I'm not looking to suffer. But when I do go through hard times, and we all do, I have an understanding of God being with me in a way that He will carry me through when I am weak and feel like I can't go any further. And if I just remain faithful to Him, I will overcome one way or the other. Now, I'm thankful to say that pretty much none of those things that I greatly feared ever came to pass. And I'm grateful for that. But those few years taught me to endure suffering in a way that was not dependent on our circumstance not dependent on what it is that's happening around us. That our attitude, even though it's still not fun, our attitude towards suffering can shift completely on its axis by us understanding God's love. He is bigger and He will bring us through in the end. He will always bring us through in the end. If you're going through something, you can walk through it with a confidence that God does have His hand on your life. God will guide you. God will lead you. God will carry you when you feel like you can't go anymore. Smyrna teaches us your circumstance is not a sign of how much God loves you or otherwise. It's got nothing to do with your circumstance. Even if the situation doesn't turn out how you want it to, God is still for you. He is with you. And He is big enough to somehow, as He promised in Romans 8.28, turn it all to work together for your good. He can still do that. He's big enough as we endure to the end. The Christians of Smyrna felt weak and abandoned in the face of the glory and the power of Rome. But John's letter encourages them that even in the face of insurmountable odds, Jesus is among them. The image of Jesus walking among the lampstands is one of Jesus being present with His people, present with you. The letter to Smyrna teaches us that whatever circumstance you're facing, God is with you and He's bigger. He's bigger. Regardless of the outcome, regardless of the situation, He's bigger than your circumstance and He can carry you through to the point of overcoming. To us as a church today, the letter to Smyrna is a challenge and an encouragement. It's a challenge to be intent upon enduring through whatever it is that life throws at us. We're probably never going to be called upon to die. It's unlikely. But whatever it is that life throws at you, we're challenged to continue to endure and not be fair weather in our commitment to Jesus. But at the same time, it's an encouragement that whatever you're going through right now, God is with you. God will strengthen you. Your endurance through it all, whatever the outcome, actually qualifies you for the crown of life. 
that you will receive.